2: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually One day the men and dogs were sitting on the crest of a cliff which fell away, straight down to naked bedrock 300 feet below. John Thornton was sitting near the edge, Buck at his shoulder. A thoughtless whim seized Thornton, and he drew the attention of Hans and Pete to the experiment he had in mind. Jump, Buck, he commanded, sweeping his arm out over the chasm. The next instant he was grappling with Buck on the extreme edge while Hans and Pete were dragging them back into safety. It's uncanny, Pete said, after it was over and they had caught their speed. Thornton shook his head no it is splendid and it is terrible too Do you know it sometimes makes me afraid Hey welcome to stuff to blow your
4: mind my name is Robert lamb and my name is Christian Sager hey Robert have you ever been standing at the edge of like a cliff or a building or maybe you're waiting for a train like a subway train and you just think I should
1: jump <laughs> well, it never quite manifests itself as i should jump it, it i find that for me it manifests itself as what if i did jump yeah and like and you know, i it's this intense contemplation of the choice i have in the matter and the fact that i could if i wanted to fling myself off of this cliff you know fall into the grand canyon go yeah. in front of a train Or a a variant of this that I that I encountered atop the Empire State Building. Have you ever been up to the top of the Empire State Building? You know that they have these. It's basically like being in a cage match. Uh There's no you would have. There's basically no way you could throw yourself off the Empire State Building. At least not on a whim. It would take it would take some uh, some some planning and some effort. But what I did find myself struggling with was what if I threw my wallet? Over the side, oh yeah, down (laughs) into the street below. That would be horrible. And so I ended up wrestling with that possibility, which is kind of like throwing a piece of your life over the side. Yeah, isn't there that adage? And I think How Stuff Works has even done an
4: article on this about like what happens when you throw a penny over the side of the Empire State Building. Oh yeah, and I think there's the the urban legend is that it can kill a person. Yeah. I don't, I don't I, know what the science is I, behind that.
1: I seem to recall it doesn't quite pan out, but, okay. uh, it's, it's been a while since I've looked at that one, but I still, I'm not going to go throwing pennies over. I feel like my yeah. wallet would maybe just bonk somebody in the head. Yeah. A little bit. Probably yeah. Would, my wallet would probably not go through somebody.
4: Yeah. Well, the other one of these is, uh, uh captured in uh Woody Allen's Annie Hall movie. Oh yeah. When Christopher Walken is talking about how he wants to swerve into traffic and at night when he's looking at the other headlights coming the other way. Mm-hmm. They're all related. Uh and this is uh, you you out there are probably going like this is real morbid guys. Where are you going with this? Uh, this is an actual phenomenon so, so common that it has multiple names and there has been a major study done on it. Uh, so we're going to cover that today. It is the sudden feeling that we want to put ourselves in harm's way. Uh, examples of this often include the urge to jump off a tall building or to veer into oncoming traffic. The French term for it is l'appel du vide, which means call of the void. Which mm-hmm. I really like. And that's how I, how I came to this was there's this pretty brutal hardcore band that I like called Call of the Void. Uh huh. And I was typing it into Google the other day and an article on this phenomenon popped up and I was like, I've never heard of this before. And then I said to you, let's, let's talk about this. Yeah. I mean, I, mean,
1: I, I knew about it. I've mm-hmm. had the experience, but and I, I feel like you know. most people have had the experience. I would, yeah. I would definitely like to hear from anyone who has not had some variant of this. Now you mentioned that it's called, uh, often referred to as "Call of the Void," and uh, some of our listeners might have recommended the the reading at the top of the episode as being from Jack London's 1903 novel, "The Call of the Wild." Mm-hmm. Uh, I like how this particular bit from that novel—certainly this is the main part of the novel that always sticks out in my mind—because it it gets into similar territory as the call of the void: the idea that with a split decision. You could bring being into unbeing. In this case it's the dog and really, but the dog also um, represents much about the the central character in The Call in the Wild as well. What's strange about it is it's like the
4: ultimate form of control when you feel like you don't have control, right? It's like this ultimate expression where you're like, Oh, like you think I don't have control over anything. The one thing I can totally control is I could just kill myself right now yeah. if I wanted to, which is horrible to think about, but I, we're going to get into it. There's like a lot of theories as to where this thing comes from. I don't mm-hmm. know about you, but like when I've experienced it, I, I feel it in the pit of my stomach. Like it's like a, a full body sensation. It's not just like a little like thought like, Oh, huh, I wonder if I, if I jumped, you know, there's this weird,
1: yeah it you Gravity get this, this to it. visceral kind of vibe from it. it's yeah. It's not so much like you're having to hold yourself down, right but sometimes yeah. you do kind of i I have been in places where I feel like i I kind of want to squat down and maybe touch the ground a little bit, yeah even though I'm not near the edge. Now, one thing I will say is that I have not felt this recently because I find that when I am in places with ledges or anything of that nature, I tend to be there with my wife and son. And so I'm more concerned about them falling out off, especially my son being like just four going on five. He falls off of stuff all the time. Yeah. So like he and he ends up generating all of my anxiety about people falling or jumping and that I don't I guess I have less room for myself. Sure. Well, that makes sense based on the
4: cognitive dissonance theory that we're going to talk about today, Mm -hmm. that that your uh, parental authority Would like override, override the biological like brain stuff that's going on theoretically here that causes it. There's a whole theory as to what causes this seems close but let's go through all this stuff and kind of okay. figure it out before we do that i wanted to add a uh, john paul sartre observed this decades ago uh, and he said that this emotion is unsettling because it creates an unnerving shaky sensation of not being able to trust one's own instincts which is which is really interesting like i i hadn't even thought about it as that that like you feel like so I just expressed it as a thing where it's like you feel like you're in total control, but then his version of it is you're totally out of control.
1: Well, it's kind of the you know, it's it's another reason I like the call of the wild uh, quote here, because he talks about this thing being splendid and terrible at the same time. Yeah. And to to stay, it's, it's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Like the yeah. Grand Canyon is an awesome experience to see that much emptiness, but it's also you feel vulnerable.
4: And if you're, sure you're going to well. go and you want to go in style, that seems like <laughs> that'd be kind of like a beautiful way to do it. Well, Is, a lot of people have. Yeah. I mean, I'm not suicidal. Don't think that audience. And we're going to talk about suicidal thoughts in relation to this as well, because it's a pretty serious topic, but I could, there, there's something, there is a, a beauty to it. And, um, this is where Mr. Sigmund Freud comes in. (laughs) And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. But first, let's look at the more recent study. This is really the hinge of this episode. So in 2011, a team of scientists from Florida State University decided to investigate it. And this was in the Journal of Affective Disorders. And the authors of the paper were led by a woman named Jennifer Hames. She's, was a graduate student, and she's currently faculty at Notre Dame. Uh, and this was at FSU's Joiner Lab. And you might be going, why would anybody want to study this? Like, where would this come from? Well, the idea here is that it could shine light on the whole idea of a death drive, that some suicides are impulsive and have nothing to do with depression. Uh, and that was interesting. I hadn't really thought of that before myself but i could reading up more on mm. freud's death drive theory i guess i could see where that came from
1: yeah i i do have to say for my own part i'm i'm i'll entertain the possibility that that exists but i'm rather i'm rather doubtful that suicide is, can occur or, or does occur in any significant, uh, to any significant degree completely isolated from depression or willful intent. Yeah. Like the idea that someone's just like, oh, I could jump off the, into the canyon and die. Let's do it. Bam. Done. The end of the deal. Yeah. Like I can see the impulse being a factor if there is already some underlying depression or if one already had some sort of a, a plan in mind. And this is just like, this is the day that I act on it. Yeah.
4: So I, you know, I think that it's worth saying like uh from my subjective experience, like I said, I myself am not suicidal and I haven't, I've had what we will refer to later as suicidal thinking, mm-hmm. but I've never had suicidal planning uh and there's a major difference right and and yeah. and this is sort of the call of the void the high the high place phenomenon those are
1: those are versions of suicidal thinking that's about as far as it's gone for me right yeah well suicidal thinking i feel like is often tied into with the uh, with the romance of suicide because yeah. we have so many stories and you know these generally are very lopsided in their presentation of suicide uh That that display it as this this noble poetic thing that doomed dreamers and doomed lovers. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I—we've all been teenagers, so we've all had moments where we're like, "Oh, my life is so tragic." And you might envision this scenario, but there's a, a to your point. There's a difference between envisioning it. Daydreaming about it, and uh, and thinking about what everyone will say when you're gone, versus actually putting some sort of plan in place. But for our listeners, I do want to establish
4: up front. You know, I have experience with people who were suicidal or have committed suicide. So mm-hmm. I am sympathetic to that and I don't want this episode to to feel like it's callous. This is connected to that, but it's a f- the the suicidal thinking that goes along with call of the void syndrome seems to be a far cry from the actual act of it. Um and but we're going to get into that at the end of the episode. So, back to this research. They found that more than 30% of the people they talked to said they had experienced this uh, phenomenon at least once. And the researchers refer to it in their study as high-place phenomenon. They weren't taking into account like throwing yourself in front of a train or driving into oncoming traffic. Uh, they were also curious whether it was related to a person's history of suicidal thinking. And from their findings, they found that it is common even among people who have no depression or suicidal Thinking history. So, this was their methodology. They asked 431 college students whether and how often they had experienced the urge to jump off of tall things. Then they examined their depressive symptoms and their history of suicidal thoughts. They also took a look at how sensitive these people were to anxiety, as well as how fearful they were of anxiety symptoms, such as an elevated heartbeat and shortness of breath. Among those who had never had suicidal thoughts, still 17% of them had experienced the urge to jump. Among those who had experienced suicidal thoughts, 56% experienced it. So that's significant. Uh, it, it, mm-hmm. If if it lines up now, we'll talk. There's a little bit of methodology stuff of this, this that I'm calling to question. The researchers were also interested specifically in the sensitivity to reactive safety signals and if that corresponded to a higher likelihood of experiencing the urge to jump. So to mark this reactivity, they looked at levels of anxiety sensitivity, such as a faster heartbeat. Uh This was because previous research suggested that high anxiety sensitivity is actually tied to a tendency for us as human beings to misinterpret random, innocuous bodily sensations as being dangerous.
1: Yeah, we, we tend to we tend to make that error in cognition, mm-hmm. you know, because there is a survival advantage in jumping to conclusions rather than not making any conclusions. One gets yeah. you eaten by a tiger. One just means you go about your daily life constantly looking for the tiger that might eat. Yeah. I mean, I've actually experienced this, I'd say in like the last two weeks
4: uh, where like I'll get up and I'll read about current events in the news and my heart will start beating rapidly and I'll go, Oh, this is, is there something wrong? Do I need to go see my doctor? And I realize, Oh, it's anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not normal, but I'm having a, a normal anxious reaction to the things that I'm reading about, right? Yeah. But then my thought is like, "Oh, what if I have a heart attack?" you know. <laughs> so this is kind of along those lines where the idea is that we misinterpret these random bodily sensations as being dangerous. Okay, so their study's finding was that, yes, more sensitivity to anxiety was related to the frequency of the urge to jump, especially in people who had never experienced suicidal thoughts. They also interpreted this as people without a history of suicidal thoughts as being more sensitive to bodily cues that they could misinterpret. So that's interesting. So if you've never experienced suicidal thoughts, they're saying you're more likely to interpret Say like your heart beating faster as uh, as something of danger.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like if you um, if you've ever had an anxiety attack, right? If you if you have if you have one and they're rare, then the first time you have one, it can be extremely alarming. Yeah, yeah. You think oh oh goodness, I'm I'm about to die now.
4: So the study ultimately translates as follows: people with high anxiety sensitivity were more likely to have higher chances of suicidal thoughts okay that makes sense so if you're sensitive to the bodily reactions and you're worried about being anxious then you're more likely to have suicidal thoughts but subsequently you are also more likely to report experiencing this call of the void phenomenon so that's interesting
1: why do we experience this though? Like, where is this coming from? well let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll
0: dive into that very question Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
5: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S.,
4: So, one theory about this call of the void phenomenon or the idea of high place phenomenon, is that there's something going on with a temporary uncoupling of our different
1: perceptual systems in our brains. It's kind of like cognitive dissonance, yeah, the yeah, the, the idea and this come up comes up all the time on the podcast, the yeah. idea that you have two different ideas, two different inclinations in your mind, and they conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. So the the classic, the easy one to go to here, of course, is, oh, I I think homosexuality is wrong, but I have homosexual thoughts in my head. These two do not go with one another. um, And this generates, it's kind of a friction in the mind. Exactly.
4: So their theory was that when you're standing on the edge of a skyscraper, your brain has fast fear circuitry. That's what they called it. Obviously, it's not circuitry. <laughs> that, and this may alert you of danger, just the danger of, Hey, you could fall. But then our perceptual system in our brain is slower than our fear system. And that kicks in afterwards and it makes you realize there's actually no danger. So to make sense of the safety signal, our brain mixes this up as cognitive dissonance and we assume we want to jump which is why people get confused by this. So this is interesting. So individuals who are experiencing this are not necessarily suicidal. Instead, it seems to reflect their sensitivity to internal cues affirming their actual will to live. So that lines up with what we were saying earlier, that they're sensitive to like, oh, I'm feeling anxious or, oh, I'm feeling depressed or whatever. So it makes sense that they would be more sensitive to their
1: uh, both their fear system and their perception system. Yeah, I, I do like how the, the main idea here is that you're safe. But you're still taking in the sensory data that says you're not safe. Yeah. And I think that we, we actually get a little bit of this when we watch a particularly terrifying video. Mm-hmm. Like we've all watched, especially in the age of GoPro. I'm sure everyone has seen like base jumping, crazy skiing videos, stuff with great heights or people climbing up antennas. Sure. And you watch it. And you couldn't be more safe watching it in your, you know, living room, in your office, on your phone or your personal computer, but you feel a visceral, uh, you know, in, in, it's, it's probably empathic, but yeah. also you're taking in certain sense data about a dangerous environment and you can't help but feel part of that.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I think I'm leaning towards agreeing with this. Uh, theory. Mm -hmm. But let's remember that this study, there's only one study on this as far as I can tell and it isn't conclusive. Um, Their explanation is simply theoretical and it doesn't have neurological evidence. Uh, the methodology also has some weaknesses, so let's acknowledge those. First of all, they only used university students, and let's be honest, university students are not representative of humanity, right? Right.
1: Yeah, it tends to be a profile of a very specific uh, socioeconomic, racial uh, division of society. Yeah, and the volunteers themselves were confessing,
4: well, they may have misremembered their experience or even falsely reported it. So that doesn't mean the study's flawed. It just mm-hmm. means we need more research. Um, so a proposal for this is to actually conduct an experiment where scientists would have to take uh, subjects and position them at different heights to test at what elevation <laughs> they begin having the thought to jump Um and there is another explanation that goes along, I think, with what you were saying about the, the watching those videos, which is that, uh, it could simply be connected to our thrill of not buckling under fear, which is a kind of cognitive dissonance. Um, this is the same reason why we go to haunted houses, right? Yeah. Both real and, uh, you know, f- fun haunted houses, but like, Think about it, like when you're a little kid uh, and somebody says, let's go, st- that house over there is haunted. I dare you to go into <laughs> it, right? It's kind of the same vibe. Uh, and then subsequently you go to something like i don't know our version is netherworld here in atlanta mm-hmm. you go to that you know somebody's going to jump out with a fake chainsaw and try to scare you but the thrill of overcoming that fear is part of why you go and pay money to do it
1: yeah i mean it fills you with endorphins you're you're very much living in the moment people who aren't into to meditation or yoga right. they still might go to a haunted house or watch a scary movie and that's that's kind of uh meditative in a sense it puts you in the now
4: yeah uh, it's it's probably another reason why jump scares are so successful in horror films, right? Yeah. There's an addiction to it.
1: Yeah, and it's simple and it works and it ties into our, our basic evolutionary state to be on the lookout for the tiger that jumps out of the grass. Now there's another take on all of this and it ties in, I think, nicely to what you said about the, the varying heights. At what height does it kick in? Yeah. For my own part I feel like there is definitely a difference between any call of the void that occurs at at lower heights yeah. as opposed to like truly awesome heights like grand canyon uh cliff edge type heights. right total obliteration yeah total yeah. obliteration i think is the thing because it's such it's such a it would be such a drastic choice okay it mm-hmm. would be such a choice between life and 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 i don't know i almost to say death like puts too much of a an atmospheric twist on it but more like between being and unbeing mm-hmm. and i think this is I keep thinking this is the the two rows diverge in a yellow woods approach. Um, so in the choose your own adventure book, that is life. We encounter plenty of forking paths, right? But many of these are hardly choices at all. I mean, on some level, we all choose whether we're gonna to go to work this morning or find a liquor store and drink our purchase in the woods behind the store. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think, so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, for most of us. A lot of people struggle with that every morning. <laughs> well, some people realistically do. No, I'm not, but, I'm not being sarcastic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, for many of us, it's not really a choice. Like, the things we do are the things we do. We have this pattern and there's really, this is where we get into that idea that we're not really making choices in yeah. life at all. However, there are choices that are more real than others, where two paths of equal weight and possibility are presented. And uh, and what is weightier than the old to be or not to be? The choice between being and unbeing mm. that stands before us when we stand at the edge of a great expanse. So it's not so much that we're tempted, but that our path-choosing brain can't help but engage in one of its many cognitive superpowers, cognitive superpower that we all possess and uh, and use to thrive. And this is uh, chronesthesia, which is uh, also known as mental time travel. So this entails our ability to be aware of our past and future and to envision multiple possible futures before us. So it's the key to our survival, but it's also the reason you might listen to NPR in the morning and mentally time travel to the dawn of the third world war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in there's that, that anxiety. Again. Yeah. The anxiety comes out and you feel it uh, in your body. Yeah. So in that moment, in the car, listening to NPR, we're forced to wonder what what we're capable of, what we're willing to lose to gain, and uh, on some level, it's kind of like the you know the scene in the Old Testament with Abraham raising his da- dagger up in the sky and then uh, above his son Isaac. And, yeah, and it's just a, will the hand of the angel come in time to, right. to spare him? Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Looking to something beyond, which gets into the Freudian aspect. Yeah. Of it, Yeah. So that's another possible explanation for it. Uh, I I tend to to feel like we've got some of this uh, definitely a part of it, but I also think the cognitive dissonance argument is also very valid. Yeah. And it does, like we've talked before on the show about how situations of cognitive dissonance often lead, lend themselves well to supernatural experience. That's mm-hmm. not to say actual supernatural occurrence, but the experience of something supernatural well, happening yeah. to us. Especially in
4: our demon possession exorcism, yeah. addorcism episode, that is uh, hugely tied to cognitive
1: dissonance. Yeah, and when you get down to it, like the the idea of, of encountering the choice between being and unbeing, this this kind of panicky f- pondering over to what extent you have free will, to what extent you have control over your fate. I mean, that is, that's pretty supernatural sounding to me. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, this is a good opportunity for us to get into a guy who let's be honest, in some situations was quasi supernatural. <laughs> uh, and his name was Sigmund Freud. Uh So Freud, after a lot of his better known principles, uh connected this to, well, the phenomenon to an idea that sometimes is referred to as a death wish, although that just calls to mind Charles Bronson for me. Oh, yeah. uh, but it is referred to as the death drive articulated in his 1920 essay, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And this describes a drive in all of us towards self-destruction and a return to the inorganic. Now, I used a paper by Joanne Faulkner on the subject to sort of see, to uh, unpackage this. Now, she argues that the death drive is when Freud departs from scientific methodology entirely and it articulates what he th- thought of as higher functions in the psyche that weren't necessarily empirical. Okay. So this is why I say like we're getting into supernatural territory here. Uh, Freud thought this was beyond science. Okay. Um, it's highly speculative and it's not grounded in scientific perspective, but Freud's idea was that the death drive circumvented our pleasure in an effort to undo a person as an organic whole. And so as such, it gave us both pleasure and discomfort. I can sort of see where he's coming from here based on like what we were previously talking about with like, yeah. I don't know, scares, right? Like, it's both pleasurable and uncomfortable. But his idea, of course, being Freud, there has to be this uh, model framework that everything fits within. And it was that the death drive was the opposite of what he called the life drive or the libido. And while the libido attaches itself to others and creates ties of affection, the death drive destroys relationships and strives for disintegration. So if the libido manifests in sex, the death drive manifests in aggression, and if this is directed inward, it could result in suicide. But here's the thing. Does the death drive lead to what we today understand as depression, right? Like Freud didn't really have a, a grasp on that the way we do now. It's possible if it's directed inward i guess but in fact some eastern philosophy indicates that self-centered acts may be a form of this kind of self-destruction that selfishness itself isolates us from others it leads us to not having support so maybe there's a little bit of a connection between depression and death drive i don't know i'm i'm not 100% on board with this hmm. i see how it could sort of make sense at the
1: time and it's connected to thoughts that we're having but huh. What is interesting you mentioned the eastern philosophies it is interesting to think of self destruction perhaps is it's not merely well let's say to to take self destruction and think of it in terms of uh of, of the, of the the wheel of samsara and the the different states and the idea that, you know, you're reincarnated into, to upper and lower forms. Yeah. One of the, the, the realms is that of the hungry ghosts where one is just, you know, constantly (laughs) grasping for something and, and, and unable to, to fill yourself with it. And uh, And there's another realm which is more of the hell realm and this is where I feel like things really line up with this uh, idea of death drive, just this, you know, rageful, uh, you know, <laughs> assault on the things that
4: anger you. I can give you like a personal version of this that I experience, and this might be a little bit TMI, mm-hmm. but, um, I often am compelled by the urge to just go be somewhere in complete isolation mm-hmm. like uh, I think when i when i have this urge it's like oh I, I like a like a rundown motel in the middle of nowhere off of a highway somewhere right uh-huh. and i'll just sit in there for a week like there's something about that that's just very compelling to me and i don't want to destroy myself i don't want to commit suicide but there's something about it that, that that draws me there right and and i think Based on what you're talking about here, so there's a similar idea here, right? Like if you believe in reincarnation and you think to yourself, well, if I die, I'm going to be reincarnated possibly as a lower life form, right? There's something kind of Zen about that, right? There's something kind of relaxing about the idea of like, I'll come back as a toad. I'll <laughs> just live life as a toad and I won't have as many concerns to bear,
1: it's true, yeah. Now, but I, I like this idea that you brought up here, too, because it also brings to mind, like, what each of us are. Yeah. So we're certainly we're, – we're an organism that's that's alive. But we're also an organism that is generally moving in various uh social spheres. And you have all of these kind of, like, invisible spider webs of social obligation yeah. all around us. And so to just – to walk away from all of that for, say, a week and go to this cabin in the woods – You are not necessarily destroying yourself, but you might be doing damage to these various social spider webs that are that have bound you up. Totally. And I can see where it would be at once liberating to walk away from all of those. Uh, and then, uh, but then at the same time, many would argue, well, that is self destructive. You were doing damage to these uh, social structures that, that help maintain you. Yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah. And that's compelling,
1: too, yeah. right? The, the
4: pop culture example of this that drew me in the most, and my wife immediately recognized it when we saw this, and she's like, you love this, don't you? <laughs> was and spoilers for this TV show if you don't want to, you might uh, learn something you don't want to know about breaking bad here. But in Breaking Bad, there's a point where the main character it goes in hiding to New Hampshire for a year mm-hmm. and he just lives in a small cottage with nothing but like, you know, canned food and newspapers for a year and he just sits there and thinks on what he's done and sleeps and eats. And is he just is. And he's entrapped by snow when we find him. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw it and I was just like, oh, God, that that seems like the best vacation ever to <laughs> me. <laughs> but at the cost of all of his social relationships, yeah. which is sort of the point
1: in the show. Uh, you know, this reminds me a lot of a Warren Zevon song that I'll some, when I, when I have this feeling, I'll play this song and listen to it. It's called Splendid Isolation. Have uh-huh. you ever heard this? No. Uh, it's great because the lyrics are basically rolling through these three different, three or four different scenarios that he is craving. Like, I want to live on the Upper East Side and never go down in the street, you know, put tinfoil up on the window. I want to live in the desert like Georgia O'Keefe, you know, mm-hmm. these different scenarios where, um, where, uh, where uh, Warren is talking about just walking away from everything and just, uh, encapsulating himself in, uh, in, in, in total isolation and, and ultimately kind of self-destructive self-centeredness because he yeah. ends up make, making comparisons to, uh, to Neverland Ranch. Uh, oh, and, interesting. Uh, you know, locking yourself up in your own private Disney yeah. world, that sort of thing. Well, I never put tinfoil on my window,
4: <laughs> but in my twenties, I have to admit, uh I I took cardboard and nailed it up over all the windows in my bedroom. Yeah. Uh just because like I wanted complete and utter darkness in there. Did you have a blacklight poster? No. No, okay. no I didn't. Not. Missed opportunity for yeah, no, a really I blew cool it. mushroom wizard uh, <laughs> blacklight poster there. Well back to this Freud thing. I think it reeks of the subjective. It's a little bit of magical thinking, which is fun. But most people in this realm, in this discipline, think of it as being eccentric. Uh, regardless, it does apply to depression. If you understand that there's an innate voice that wishes for death and destruction, well, that's, that's helpful, right? At least in therapy, you can help separate that and distance yourself from those thoughts. And that takes away their power and allows you to challenge them and minimize them and disregard them. So there's something to that. People who are just like outright dismiss Freud. I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. Like I don't buy it a hundred percent of the time. But I do think that there's some value in that he helped the profession sort of edge along slowly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I always come back to my, my lens analogy where would I, would I want to walk around with, with the Freud lens in place all the time with my Freud goggles on all the time? No, I, w- I would not, but I do find it is helpful in varying scenarios to pull the, the, the Freud lens down over my own vision, over right. my own worldview and think, Oh, Well, how might this apply to the current scenario? What does what how does Freud uh, illuminate what's going on here? Well, why don't we take a quick break? And when
4: we come back, we're going to delve into some actual statistics about suicidal thinking that may help us unravel this call of the void phenomenon a little more.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position
4: All right, we're back. So when mental health professionals refer to these call of the void moments, they usually call it suicidal ideation. But that term seems broad for our purposes here today. So let's let's try to separate out what the difference might be. OK. In 2011, the CDC conducted a really big study examining statistics about suicide, suicidal thinking uh, and um, suicidal uh, preparation. And they found that 3.7% of adults in the United States had had suicidal thoughts in just the last year. Now, let's put that in a perspective. That's 8.3 million people. That's a lot of people. Uh Other studies have placed this even higher, saying that it's actually around 8 to 10 percent of the population. Now, let's look at the previous study on the, the high place phenomenon. That's not even close to the 30 to 50 percent of people who reported that they had experienced that phenomenon. Right. So. It it seems like what we think of as suicidal ideation and and high place phenomenon or call of the void. Those are different. It seems like Uh, it suggests that there's there's some kind of different thought process going on there.
1: Yeah. And of course, with all of this, it depends on exactly how you're phrasing the question and how the individual on the other end views suicidal thoughts, uh, et cetera. I mean, because a big thing is like, what does that individual's culture say about suicide? Yeah. Now, even there's. This is the kind of thing that we would have to bust out in a longer episode. But even within the United States, you're going to have varying subsets uh, of people that are going to have different ideas about suicide.
4: Yeah. And that actually plays into these statistics as well. Uh, In the CDC report, they actually summarize the data on 92,264 respondents. But this establishes a difference between having suicidal thoughts and actually making plans for a suicide or attempting it. Mm-hmm. Plans and attempts are very different from just thinking about it. Okay? The estimates vary based on a couple things, socio-demographic factors as well as the region of the country that you live in. So what you're just saying, here we go. Suicidal thoughts were higher among young adults between the ages of 18 to 29 than they were for people over 30. It was also significantly higher for women in general. Non-Hispanic whites were the group with the highest prevalence of suicidal thoughts, while non-Hispanic Asians were the group with the lowest suicidal thoughts. And regional factors... This is really complicated, but they think it could be related to indicators such as divorce rates or resources to access like healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh and so the cause and effect relationship here is unknown, but there's a, there's a couple things like for instance adults with less than a high school education and those who were unemployed at the time were more likely to have these thoughts. Finally, those in the Midwest and the West were more likely to have suicidal thoughts than those in the Northeast and the South. Now, I don't know how to unpack that, but what you presented sounds, sounds close, which is that like various cultures have different beliefs about suicide, right? And, and, or like they said, that there's like real world factors, like how much access they have to healthcare or, 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 or do they have a job? Things like that. So there's limitations to this accounting, though, that we should note as well. For instance, previous studies indicate that adults, when they're talking about suicidal thoughts, they under report, especially when they're talking about when they were adolescents. So if they're adults now and they're saying, well, when I was an adolescent, this is, you know, I, this is how often I experienced that they're they, they're known to under report. That makes sense to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, you're a different person when you're an adult than when you're an adolescent. So you're really kind of teasing apart the thoughts and motivations of of a different you entirely. So I can see where there might be a tendency to say, oh, well, that 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 20-year-old me, that 18-year-old me, uh, he didn't know what he was talking about. No, he wasn't serious about that.
4: And this study also didn't account for a couple populations uh first of all institutionalized populations which mm-hmm. would probably have i mean we would assume would have a higher rate of thinking about suicide and it totally cut out any kind of native american population so and that wasn't like on purpose it was just because they didn't have access to enough uh evidence
1: yeah i think there is a large factor here that comes down to is suicide an an open pathway to this individual. Is it at all socially acceptable to what degree is it socially acceptable? Yeah, right. And that is going to be governed by your culture, your history, indeed what, what books and movies, what bits of bits of fiction mm-hmm. you, uh, yeah, you, you value, right. these are all going to help to skew this idea of, of whether or not suicide is a practical option for an individual. Yeah. But, very different from the idea of standing
4: on a ledge and looking and just kind of getting that urge to jump. Yes, right. Yes. So that's why I put these statistics in here to sort of just give you like these are very different things and we can see the statistical differences just between these two studies. It's also worth remembering all of this stuff for both studies is self-reported and mm-hmm. that is not 100 percent reliable.
1: Now, to to sort of pull out of the uh, the, the gloomier aspects of this uh, this topic, um, I, I, w- I will ask everyone to to think about the the call of the void. You know, uh, the situation in which uh, the gravity of disastrous choices, you know, it's not merely anxiety inducing or or threatening to one's sense of self control, but it is exhilarating. It's uh, it's it's sort of a endorphin pumping high that one achieves from skydiving or even less dangerous smaller acts. And, and plus, what is the, the true call of the void, but a, but a contemplation, however unformed, of oblivion, a complete emptying of self, not merely hearing the call of the void, but, but kind of touching the void, having almost a, a spiritual moment. To, to go back to that quote from Call of the Wild, again, you know, something that is at once splendid and terrible.
4: Yeah. And so as we've been doing in some of our episodes recently, we want to make sure if you heard this and this like touched upon something for you and and you were hearing these statistics or whatever. And you thought, well, this this resonates within me and I'm a little concerned. There's actually a a nonprofit that we would like to throw a line out to so that you, in case you're feeling that way, have some support. And it's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh it's a support line. It's twenty four seven. It's free. It's totally confidential. It's for people who are in distress. Uh and it helps prevent crises and provides resources for you and your loved ones. So maybe it's not you, maybe it's somebody you know. Uh so the number for that is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Again, it's one
1: eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. All right. And uh, hey, if you want to hear more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if you want to check out videos, blog posts, you name it, links out to our social media accounts, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. And I want to hear from you, the audience. Have you experienced
4: the call of a void? Have you thought about jumping off a tall building or the Grand Canyon or maybe even onto a train track before? But of course, you didn't want to. You just got mixed up with these feelings inside. Mm-hmm. That's, that's basically how we all feel nowadays. I'm just <laughs> So mixed up with these feelings inside. <laughs> uh, let us know. You can let us know on Facebook twitter tumblr or instagram or you can write us at blowthemind at
1: howstuffworks.com and to close out here today i'm just going to read another quote this one comes from a book by robert graves a number of you may be familiar with him from his more popular work such as i claudius but he also wrote a book called uh, goodbye to all that and he talks about the great war he talks about mountain climbing and this is just a quick quote where he talks about climbing my worst climb was on Lilwood, the most formidable of the precipices, when, at a point that needed most concentration, a raven circled round the party in great sweeps. I found this curiously unsettling, because one climbs only up and down or sideways, and the ravens seemed to be suggesting diverse other possible dimensions of movement, tempting us to let go our hold and join him.
4: Zumo Zumo Play.